chapter 1, verse 1, the Gospel of Matthew. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Exciting, isn't it? It gets better. 17 verses of this. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And I need to stop there because unless I give an explanation, that's about as interesting as reading the telephone directory. But it's not about being boring. I have come to understand in my search of God's Word that nothing is put here by accident. From this genealogy of Jesus, we find some rather unsavory characters. And I have to wonder why he would allow their names to be in and amongst this genealogy of the Messiah. So would you stretch your hands and ask God to help me for the next moments we have together and so that we can be enriched by his word. Would you do that for a few seconds? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for beautiful music. Anointed singing. Uh, Lord, I just thank you that the angels uh, were blessed today because they received the songs. As, as I thank you that you, God, and our Savior Christ was blessed. And, and so, Father, I don't have any desire just to keep the people lengthy. I don't have any desire just to do something for the sake of wanting to be on the program. But I do want to take these moments and these words and you to knit our hearts together. So that it'll be life and bread and honey and water and everything the Word described as being beautifully. We thank you, God, that out of these truths, we will be better for Christ's sake. And would you say amen? Amen. And thank you for being seated. Please, I must acknowledge that last Sunday I told you I'd have these pamphlets available for you. United in the Word. A daily Bible reading guide. I ask you to join me and as many of you that would to read your Bible through in 2011. These pamphlets, are divide, uh, 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 they divide the Scripture in the 365 days. And uh, it is the 400th year of the rendition of the King James Version of the Bible next year. And I tell you that you are adding to yourself when you read the Word. I, I saw in a, uh, a bit of a news clip yesterday that a little boy has gotten a book that he doesn't even want to close. He got a book recently and he's refused to detach himself from it. It is a book about Christmas. The boy's father is in Afghanistan as a soldier. But it's the father's voice taped into the book reading the story to the to the boy. And he refuses to depart from it. I can't help but find a spiritual analogy to that. The Father reading the book to us, and we shouldn't want to put it down. 
I'm going to ask you, if you will, sign your name if you'd like to enter this journey. Uh, Not because I want to hold you to a whole year. If you can't do it, that's okay. But if you sign your name to one of the places of entry that we have here and in the atrium, it'll give me an appropriate list to pray over during the year and perhaps to even encourage you in the process. Thank you for that. Genealogies were very important to the Jewish people for several reasons. When family properties were involved, the sale of family properties, genealogies was very significant. Because in the time and day in the culture of Jesus, one could not sell property, family property, against, around and across tribal lines. Twelve tribes of Israel. You couldn't sell your property to a member of another tribe. You received it through your genealogy. You could sell it to a family member in your tribe. Genealogies were important in the life and times of the Old Testament and the times of Jesus because the entire priesthood of Israel depended on genealogies. All Israel's priests had to be descendants of the tribe of Levi. If one could not prove their heritage from this tribe, they were ineligible to serve as priests. Genealogies were also important in order to trace the royal line in Israel. Anyone claiming rights to the royal throne in Israel had to demonstrate genealogically that he descended from David and was in the line of royalty. To the casual reader of Matthew's Gospel... These first verses. One would think that they are just merely a list of names. And if if we don't give our time and our effort to understanding why they're here, we'll miss the significance of them. Because these names relate to people who play an important part in world history, in salvation's history. In the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have two different genealogies, two different family trees. One by Matthew and one by Luke. And if you put these two together, you will see some differences. Although they have differences, they are not meant to contrast one another. They are meant to complement one another. I might note a few differences for you. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and moves forward to Jesus. Luke's genealogy begins with Jesus and moves backwards all the way to Adam. Matthew's genealogy is descending, coming down from the Father to the Son. Luke's genealogy is ascending, moving up from the Son to the Father. Matthew's genealogy goes back to Abraham. Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam. Matthew is writing... Primarily to a Jewish readership, the people of Abraham. Luke is writing to a worldwide readership because he takes Jesus' genealogy all the way back again to Adam, the first man. Matthew's genealogy contains 42 names. Luke's genealogy contains 77 names if you include Jesus Joseph and God. Many scholars believe that Matthew gives us the genealogy of Joseph and Luke gives us the genealogy of Jesus' mother, Mary. 
The stories recorded in the opening chapter of each of these Gospels, Matthew focuses on Joseph and Luke focuses on Mary. And although there are differences in these two lists, here's the point I want you to get. Both family trees show the ancestry of Jesus coming through King David. What you cannot do in Matthew's account or Luke's account is just add up the ages of all the people listed and find out how old humanity is. That doesn't work. It was the accepted norm in that culture to only record key or significant certain people in the genealogy. Some generations of people are deliberately missed out, but not the key individuals. Now, although there are differences in the list, again, I want you to get this. This is significant for who Jesus is. Both family trees show the ancestry of Jesus as coming through King David. Because you remember the prophet said, of David's kingdom, of the throne of David, there shall be no end. You remember the Bible said that out of the house of David, God will raise up a ruler. Of which his kingdom will have no end. The list clearly shows that both his earthly father and mother are related to King David. Without this link, Jesus would not be qualified to be the Messiah. So these genealogies are very important. These genealogies prove that Jesus of Nazareth has the legal right to David's throne. Somebody say amen. Now, the Jews really took their genealogy seriously. They did so because they wanted to be able to prove that they were of the right pedigree. For some people, pedigree is is very important. You know that some of you have made this journey with me for the last four years. So you've heard my stories of the four-legged addition to our family in the person... Of Prissy the Poodle. And you know that upon her arrival to our home as a gift for my children, which we never asked for. Kimberly and JC would often leave their little smaller poodle, whose name is Pookie. Pookie, Prissy. Don't laugh, I've got some of your Christmas cards with your family pictures and I've seen your dog there too and... And I like the one name I got the other day from a family who had their picture, and their dog's name is Orby. Orby. Maybe the thing just goes around and around and around and around. But anyhow, that's not why I'm here today. Ah, Prissy does everything. Now that we've been together four years and our love for each other has grown, she's everything that I would want in a family dog. Comes home, I don't care what kind of your mood you're in. You know if you've had pets. And if you have a pet dog, just wag that tail and get all happy and excited. Prissy, uh, if she feels like something's not just right, you know, maybe we're upset about something, she, she just kind of comes up close to us and senses and concern. And, you know, I never thought that we'd put a dog on the bed. I never in my bald-headed life thought that we'd put a dog on the bed. But that dog ends up on the bed every evening and snuggles up. And you get a little warm because she, she's just that. I, I mean, 
she's everything you want. She barks when somebody comes to the door. She barks when nobody comes to the door. And, and while during the first six months of our relationship, I would have gladly given her away. Because when the children asked me what we should name her upon my introduction of her, I said to the children we should name her, Go away! <laughs> and so, she's family now. Yeah. Don't be messing with my dog, okay? I mean, she got her own medical plan. <laughs> to some people, Prissy would be worthless because they care about pedigree. And for all I know, Prissy is a full-blooded poodle, but we don't have the papers to prove her pedigree, so therefore some folks won't even fool with Prissy. They care about pedigree. Now, in, in some ways, the Jewish people in the days of Jesus were like this. A person could be a fine individual, but if they couldn't prove that they were sons of Abraham, that is, descended by an unbroken line to Abraham, I don't care how good that person was, they were considered to be worthless. They were of bad pedigree. You know, you've heard preachers say, and I've done it too, we've talked about the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans during the days of Jesus. That was a legitimate hatred. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans because they did not think the Samaritans had a good pedigree. They considered the Samaritans to be half Jewish and half not Jewish, which was as bad as not being Jewish at all. And of course, the Samaritans didn't appreciate being looked down upon, so they hated the Jews right back. Many Jewish men would go to the temple and pray and be grateful for two things. They were grateful they were not born a woman, and they were grateful they were not born a Gentile. Such was the significance of pedigree. So it was a matter of great honor to have a good family tree. If, if you said that someone had a few rotten branches in their family tree, you would start, you could start a fight. Some of you may feel that way about your family now. We all have family trees. You don't want anybody talking about your family tree and your genealogy bad. But have you shook that tree lately? Go study your tree. Shake your family tree. There's a few nuts that will fall to the ground. My family tree, too. Go over there and hug your family tree. And there's some saps. Some sap coming off of some of our trees. Go ahead and say amen or oh me, but that's just the way it is. We've all got some skeletons in the closet. And it was no exception with the genealogy of Jesus. But I'm wondering why. Because I'm thinking Matthew should be very careful in his genealogy of Jesus to show that he, Jesus, was of the finest pedigree. After all, Matthew was showing that Jesus was descended from the father of the nation through Abraham, and Matthew was showing that Jesus descended from the greatest king through David. You would think that Matthew would be careful to show that Jesus had the purest of pure Jewish pedigree. On one occasion, the apostle Paul was questioned regarding his genealogy and pedigree. And in his defense, he said, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I am a Jew of Jews, the finest pedigree. 
And you would think that Matthew would be very careful to show that Jesus was descended from very upright and honorable people. After all, Jesus is the king of the world and royalty are from good families. You would think that Matthew would go out of his way to show that Jesus' family tree was without any shame or any embarrassing people. If there were crooked branches, diseased parts of the tree, you might think that Matthew would gloss over them. And I'm making a point here, just tarry with me for a moment. The typical Jewish genealogy like Matthew was compiling would show all of Jesus' ancestors to be good people, male people, and Jewish people. Get this, if you will. In the Jewish way of thinking back then, especially the folks like the Pharisees, the religious people, only holy male and Jewish people were worthy of respect. With that in mind, there are a few people in Jesus' genealogy which are downright improper. There are a few people that they are shocking, actually. Uh, an embarrassment? Inappropriate and scandalous. Skeletons in the closet. But I, I've come to discover they're there for a good reason. A reason that might be important to all of us today. And so, uh, I, I want to look at these four of them. And uh, th these four of them already have three strikes against them. They are not Jewish, except one of the four. They are not holy. And they are not men. Now, to the Jewish audience that Matthew was writing this gospel to, it would be very shocking to the readers that Matthew included these four women. As they read this genealogy of Jesus, if they're thinking Matthew's trying to persuade them that he is the real Messiah, they're thinking, why does he have four women in here? Because in regular Jewish genealogy of that time, women were excluded, especially women of this kind of quote-unquote caliber. And so, every one of these women in, in, in Jesus' family tree, not counting Mary, has a questionable past. And you have to think, when you study it, and, I, and I'm moving with haste here, what was Matthew thinking by airing this dirty laundry list? Why mention these women when there were so many others he could have mentioned that would not have been so embarrassing? There's a purpose why God includes anything in his book. Good news, bad news, whatever news. There's a purpose why he includes it. He doesn't just put ink to paper just because he wants to have a book. As I, as I look at him, let, let, let me just tell you. The first is Tamar, T-A-M-A-R. Her story is told to us in Genesis 38. The Bible said she was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And Judah, as you know, was one of Jacob's son and a very important person in Old Testament history. Tamar married one of Judah's son whose name was Ur, E-R. The Bible said he was a mean boy, and therefore God killed him. They had no children. So, according to the custom, she was supposed to marry her brother-in-law so that she would not be childless. 
Her brother-in-law, whose name was Onan, O-N-A-N, would not give her a child to keep the family lineage going. So God took care of him. Aren't you glad he don't deal that way anymore? According to the custom, she now was supposed to marry Judah's third son. But Judah drug his feet and did not give his son to Tamar, so she appeared to be doomed to die without ever giving birth to a child. Realizing that her time of fertility might soon be expired, she took matters in her own hand. The Bible said she dressed up as a prostitute and waited until her father-in-law, Judah, came along the road. He didn't recognize her because she disguised herself as a prostitute. He hired her. He had sex with her. And she became pregnant with a child through him. When Judah found out that his widowed daughter-in-law, Tamar, was pregnant, he was going to have her killed until it was revealed that he was the father of her child. Now, she's an adulteress. You see how the family stuff can get messed up now? The father-in-law is having a child through the widowed daughter-in-law. <laughs> Sound like the old country song says, I'm my own grandpa. <laughs> you know how family? Yeah, okay, okay. Because of her deception, she, Tamar, had two children. They're listed for you. In verse number 3, their names were Perez and Zerah, and through them the line of Jesus was kept intact. Boy, you listen to this kind of nonsense, and you're thinking, my Lord, it comes out of the television show. You know the one called Demonic Desperate Housewives? <laughs> Tamar is a woman who have lost two husbands. And now she's tricked her father-in-law into having a child by her by becoming a prostitute. She's an adulteress and a prostitute, and, and she's included in the genealogy. Well, then the next person I find listed in the genealogy of Jesus is a woman by the name of Rahab. The Bible says of Rahab, she was a Canaanite woman, and as a result of being a Canaanite woman, she was Gentile. And most of you know the story of Rahab, but let me just enlighten you briefly. Rahab being a Canaanite, the Canaanites were the enemies of God's people who fought Israel every step of the way in their attempt to inhabit the promised land. You can read more about her in Joshua chapter 2. Not only was she a Gentile, she was a hated Gentile. And to make matters worse, she was a prostitute. In Joshua, the second chapter, verse 1, the Bible says she was a prostitute. When the children of Israel were coming in to take the land God had given them, Joshua sent out spies to spy out the land to make sure that they were able to take it. A couple of those spies went into the city of Jericho. And you remember the city of Jericho is where Rahab lived. And the city of Jericho had very tall, wide, strong walls, much, much of it impenetrable. And an army could not get through there very easily. And, and certainly Israel couldn't get through the walls of Jericho without the help of God. Two spies go in and they go to Rahab's house and she's a, she's a harlot, a prostitute. 
Word comes to the king of Jericho and the region around that, that two uh, of the Israelites come in, in to take the land led by Joshua uh, at the house of Rahab the harlot. The king sends word to Rahab and says, release these two spies because they're coming to destroy us. And Rahab lied after hiding them on the roof of her house and lied to the people coming to arrest these spies and said, they have left my house. They have gone through the city gates. If you rush, you might find them somewhere in the wilderness before the sun goes down. And the Bible says later she lowered these two men by way of accord through a window on the wall of the city where she lived. And the men said to her, because you've rescued us and protect us, we'll protect your family when God gives us the city. So what you find here is a Canaanite Gentile, prostitute, liar, who later gives birth to Boaz, who carries on the line of Jesus. But then next you have Ruth. Her story is, is of course, found in the book by her name, the book of Ruth. Now, I don't know of anything bad I can say about Ruth. But according to the Jews, she came from very bad pedigree. Because she was a Moabite woman. Uh, Ruth comes into the scenario because at one time, when Israel was going through a famine, a man by the name of Elimelech and his wife Naomi left Israel to go to the land of Moab because there was food there. They took their two sons. They're Jewish. In the land of Moab, their two sons break Jewish tradition and law and marry Gentile women. One of us being Ruth, the other being Opar. And, and what happens is these sons die and are buried in the foreign land. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. When things are improved back in Israel, Naomi and her daughter-in-laws decide to go to Israel. Naomi gives her daughter-in-laws options of staying back in their homeland. One of them stay, the other go with Naomi. Her name is Ruth. Now, here's, here's the thing about the Moabite situation here, which brings into question this genealogy. While Ruth was a woman of character and integrity and sound morality and loved her mother-in-law, she was of a... Gentile, cursed people. The Moabite nation was birthed in family incest. Do you remember when God decided after warning Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it, that Lot and his two daughters were the only survivors who escaped the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah and fled to the hills? The two daughters of Lot realized we have no male presence among us except my, our dads. Thus, without having male among us except our dad, we cannot marry and produce seed to keep the family name going. So the two daughters of Lot, while living in a cave with their father, got their father drunk on two different nights. And each had sex with him, one the first night and the other the second night. And as a result of 
incestuous fornication. Two nations were born. One was eventually named Moab. The other was named Ammon, Ammonites. And when you look at this, you don't get a lot of good feelings about this kind of family. I got to guard myself here, Lord Jesus. Unclean. But the Bible says Ruth ends up marrying a Jewish man by the name of Boaz, and she gave birth to a boy by the name of Obed, who was the grandfather of David, and therefore an ancestor of Jesus. You think you've seen reality TV? Listen to this. Bathsheba. Case in point, and I'm going to keep it brief. The Bible calls her, look at, look at verse 6, the last part. Her who had been the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. Bathsheba commits adultery with David, the king. Now, let me give you a little scenario here. The king, at a time of war, when he should have been out with his army defending the kingdom, stayed home. And one evening, as the sun was going down, decided to take a little tour, visual tour of his domain, got on the roof of his house and a few roofs over saw a woman bathing, and of course bathing on the roof of her house, she was naked. The Bible said she was beautiful. He inquired, son of the messenger, who is that woman? The message came back, she is the wife of Uriah. One, the, the Uriah king is a soldier in your army. You are home, he's fighting for your life. He said, bring her over. They do. I don't know how willingly she participated or reluctantly. I don't, I don't know how much. Maybe she thought she was obliged and had to because he was the king. But she committed adultery. Not only did she commit adultery, but the, the union of their adulterous relationship produced seed, which produced a child, pregnancy. David, in order to cover up the pregnancy, make it look like it's the husband and not him, had Uriah come home from war, tried to get him drunk so he would go home and have sex with his wife and make it look like they had a baby in his, in his leave of absence from the war. But, but it didn't work. The man didn't even go home with his wife. He said, how can I go home and, and, and spend a night with my wife when I got fellow soldiers out of the battlefield there giving their lives so I could have a, a, a freedom? So interwoven in the story of Bathsheba is deceit, it is, there's treachery, and there's murder. Eventually, in David's attempt to cover up his sin and not get blamed for it, he organized the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. God judged him because the baby died. Not the baby's fault. But God says, no, this is not going to be. And then later on, the Bible says David marries Bathsheba. She gives birth to a son whose name is Solomon, who is another link in Jesus' genealogy. Now, I, I will tell you something about this list. This ain't known as, pardon me, our grammar's not proper. This isn't known as the Hall of Fame of Jesus' genealogy. It, it might be known as the Hall of Shame. I feel a whoop glory coming on. A precious lady, Sister Cornelia Green, has had to move away from Noonan to back to her home state of Texas for family reasons. 
She'd been with us for about three years. And, oh, precious lady, I was going back to Texas, and, and she sent me a card for Christmas. And in her card, she gave me one of the best compliments I've ever received. She said, Merry Christmas, we miss you. And out here in Texas, we haven't yet found a whoop glory preacher. <laughs> They're one of a kind, brothers. Keep looking, Cornelia. I think, look at, these, look at this dirty laundry. Hall of shame. Skeletons in the closet. Among these women, and, and most three of them are Gentiles, unclean, of bad pedigree. They were all sinners. Involved in deceit, prostitution, even murder. They are tragic figures. All their stories are sad because the four women loses four husbands between them. And, and finally, just that they were women made them undesirable according to that culture. Because according to that culture and time, women were treated as property. Like one would treat a, probably a farm animal. And don't, don't be looking too hard at me because some of you are nodding like not much has changed. But we're not going there. Hey, I'm wondering, and I need to hurry here. Why did Matthew do this? Why did he include, I mean, the other women that he could have wrote about. Why did he include adulterers, prostitutes, liars, incestuous relationship, murderer? I, uh, <laughs> I don't think he just included them. He highlighted them. And I think there's several reasons, but I must tell you at least this reason. Matthew was writing to Jewish people to show them that Jesus was their king. He is of the house of David. But he was also writing to the rest of the world, the Gentile people of his day. He eventually would be writing to the Greek and the Romans that would reach the next generation. Matthew didn't even realize when he was writing that his, his book would be, be still in existence 2,000 years after he died. He didn't realize that he would be writing to people in 2010, December 12, 2010, red skin, white skin, brown skin, yellow skin, people from all nationalities. What Matthew was trying to say by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ was not coming to just be the king of the righteous Jews. He was coming to be the king of the whole wide world. Red, yellow, black, white, Brown, whoever you are, he is king of all. And if you'll receive him, he'll change your life. Everybody ought to praise him. Uh, he came to save folks like Tamar, who went from being good to bad. He came for people like Rahab, who went from being bad to good. Uh, I know I'm the only one probably enjoying this, but indulge me. Oh, my, 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 my. You know, we see people, we put numbers on their head based on their value. We may not put it out loud or say it or whatever, you know, but on a scale of 1 to 10, I think that's a 2. That may be a 7. Yeah, we, 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 and, and if God wanted to, He could have put a 0 over all of our heads. 
What have we ever done for God that He couldn't do for Himself? And after then, He sent His Son, and we went and killed Him. Can somebody here help me? Oh, Jesus. what, what, What I'm trying to tell you is, Matthew shows us that God was willing to use some questionable people in His plan to save the world. He used women. He used Gentiles. He used prostitutes and adulterers who later became redeemed. And even the men who committed adultery with them. He used sinful, fallen people to bring to us a sinless, perfect Savior. Somebody praise the Lord. (laughs) Oh, yeah. None of that sin ever touched Jesus. He could come through all that mess. And still be God. <laughs> oh, Jesus, help him. My energizer battery. Some of you are praying you don't get recharged, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to finish up here. Why include them? Four thoughts, and I'm not going to spend a lot. God can and will use anyone. He wants to accomplish his purpose. Don't forget one occasion he used a donkey. Did you all hear me? <laughs> Man, I got a streak of meanness in me sometimes. Y'all ever met any talking donkeys? <laughs> yeah, some two-legged talking donkeys. But anyhow, we move right on. Because God can use anybody. Oh, man. A king is coming. Why, why mess with shepherds? They're the lowest rung of the totem pole. But no. Nobody's going to be left out with Jesus. Can I get a witness here, somebody? I, I guess I'm telling you that you are not... Spent out and a has been. I don't care who you've been with, what you've done with them, and how long you did it. If you care about your soul and you care about being washed and cleansed and given a brand new start, Jesus came for you. God is willing to forgive the worst of sins if we are willing to be used of Him. Somebody say amen. Let me tell you, there are people who got videos playing in their head of sins they've done. And they say, oh God, I wish I could erase it. I wish I could push the delete button. I've allowed my mind to think things, my eyes to see things, my mouth to say things. We've all done that in some way. We're not, we may not be the kind of descriptions of these four women, but all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not here to compare who's the worst sinner. I'm just here to tell you, if you're willing to be used of God, I don't care if you're 7, 70, or 77, God's not finished with you. I am hurrying. God loves to use the least likely tools for His task. Help me, somebody. Yeah. I'm telling you, you may feel worthless. Your marriage may be shot. Your kids may be rebellious. Your body may be bruised. Your, your family tree may be a shambles. But God says, whosoever will, let him come. If God will use and change a prostitute and a murderer and a Gentile and a harlot, and he will use people who involve in in all kinds, and say, if you are willing to come to the cross, there's room for you. One more thought, please. The good news is, no matter how bad you are, how bad you've been, how many mistakes you've made, 
for <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life and here's one more Christmas and one more opportunity include four women in the genealogy of Jesus because the people in the messianic genealogy are not on display this story ain't about Tamar, Rahab Ruth or Bathsheba it ain't about you or me it's about God's grace I said it's about God's grace I don't have enough fingers and toes to count the times that God's grace has touched my life. If I were to borrow your fingers and toes to count the times, there's not enough of you here. How good God's been to me. I'm not asking for a license to sin, no granting you one. Neither would you have enough appendages to count His grace. So the older I get, the less ornery I want to become. <laughs> Some of you are looking at me sometimes like, you doing a pretty good job being ornery now. No. I've seen some people get older and they get grouchy and they get mean and they get legalistic. I don't want to be a grouchy old man. And if my wife was here, she'd say amen. Uh, I don't want to be a grouchy, bald head, toothless wonder sitting in some nursing home batting everybody's head to come off. No. I want grace and I want to give grace if you're a product of grace would you rise to your feet with me if you're a product of grace and after you've done so could you just put those hands together and let's take about 15 seconds come on do it loud oh man look at me just a minute I'm convinced that if you got a new shirt, you need a new shirt by the middle of next year. I'm convinced if your kids got toys, they'd become disinterested in them by the middle of January. Not against shirts and toys. I'm convinced if you got a new computer, it'd go out of style by mid-June. All those things have their place. But I'm convinced if you got Jesus, He never gets boring. He never gets worn out. He never gets old-fashioned. Never, never. I'm convinced if you'll give your bondages, your fears, your genealogies. I'm convinced if you give your bag and your bags and your, and your boxes and your burdens and your bundles, if you give all our trash, I don't mean that to degrade who He is. If you'll give it to Jesus, uh, He will change you in seconds. Bow your heads. Pastor, I am in need of better pedigree. My genealogy, my, my, my story is not worthy of God's mentioning my name, but I want to change that this Christmas. I want to be a better father, a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better daughter, a better son. I want to be a better student. I want to be a better employer. employer. I just know that while I need some material things, I need Jesus more. Without me begging you or preaching another sermon, if that's you, I need a Savior or I need to return to Christ. 
Raise your hands if that's you. Hold it up. Hold it up. Come on. Here's your moment. This is your... Hold it up. Nobody has to look at but me, Anna. Hold it up because I want to count because it matters. It matters. Your soul. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Thank you. Nine, ten. Don't put them down yet. Don't put them down. Twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two. Put them down now. Oh, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let everyone, oh my, my, everyone repeat after me this prayer out loud. It's called the prayer of repentance, a sinner's prayer. Please, if you prayed it before and you're already saved, I'm asking you to pray it again so you can encourage somebody who might not feel comfortable praying it by themselves. Out loud, everybody repeat after me. Lord Jesus, thank you for another chance. This time, I will not waste it. I ask you, Jesus. To come into my life. I confess I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. But you have died to save me. You are the Son of God. I claim you today by faith as my Savior. Wash away all of my sins. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus. And I believe in my heart that He is my Savior. And as a result, I am saved. Write my name in your book of life. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I belong to a royal family. I've got royal blood in my vein. Because, Jesus, I'm connected to you. Amen and amen. Now give him-